Today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, we'll hear about people throughout U.S. history that have been trying to get society, and in some cases schools, to spend more time on peace studies. John Dewey, in 1923, he wrote a very influential article called The Schools as a Means of Developing a Social Consciousness and Social Ideals in Children. Then a panel of folks trying to put together a peace studies class in a New Mexico high school. And one of the most striking things that I remember is students saying to me after a peace club meeting is, how come we didn't get this in school? Later, we'll hop on a tandem bike with an individual who went all around the world to try to promote peace and compassion by offering free rides. And what we found was that people, you know, just using the spirit of play as a kid, responded and hopped on the bike, even though we couldn't often communicate with them. All today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. When you think back about your own history education, think about how much of it was a history of wars. And then ask yourself, how much in there was a history of peace treaties, avoidance of war, and successful nonviolent movements? Maybe you heard a bit about Gandhi and King, but who else? There have been some people in our union's history that have been trying to get society, and in some cases our schools, to spend more time on peace studies education. We're about to hear from a professor who's pulled them together in a book. And then we'll hear from a panel of folks supporting an effort to bring an honest-to-goodness peace studies class to a New Mexico high school. And later on, a conversation with a man who took a tandem bicycle all around the world to try to promote peace and compassion. We begin with Charles Howlett, associate history professor at Molloy College in New York State, co-author of Books, Not Bombs, Teaching Peace Since the Dawn of the Republic. I happen to be a veteran. I served during the Vietnam War. Um, In my personal opinion, I feel very strongly that veterans who know the cost that's involved and the sacrifice that is involved with serving our country probably want peace more than anything else. Uh, that to me is, is a driving motivation. The other factor is that I studied with a noted historian, the late Arthur E. Kirch, whose popular book in 1955, The Decline of American Liberalism, talks extensively about the role of peace as one of the most important aspects to a democratic society. So I think his ideology influenced me, and then my own service also encouraged me to talk more about the importance uh, of what, it, what a democratic society is all about. And it's about peace and understanding and cooperation. It's not about going to war and being John Wayne. Well, if our audience is our classroom today and our class time has been slashed due to funding cuts down to about 20 minutes, <laughs> what figures or moments in the history of peace studies would you want your students to walk out knowing at least a little bit about What leaps to mind as an important uh, person or moment? All right. Well, I I think uh, historically, if we look at our past, uh, there was an individual by the name of L.U. Burrett, uh, whom the late Pulitzer Prize-winning historian referred to as the learned blacksmith of the mid-19th century. Uh, He was not educated formally, but he managed to master about 40 languages, And he established a program called the League of Universal Brotherhood uh, 
as well as an olive leaf mission as part of his own crusade uh, to uh, educate the American public and people across the pond in Europe about the importance of international diplomacy. He was more about people diplomacy, and he also was very much involved with uh, educating and calling attention to the importance of the laboring masses as a, as a vehicle or instrument for peace. Uh, he strikes me as one of the most interesting uh, figures of the 19th century in terms of peace education. What uh, historical events would have been motivating him in his time on Earth? Well, I, that's a very good question. Uh, I think in large measure the experience of the War of 1812, uh, the conflict with the United States and Mexico in the 1840s, I think in part he was a, uh, a product of the beginning of the organized peace movement in American history. And he sought to advance it largely through his own individual efforts. And I think more importantly, he, he understood that a democratic society is one that is based on understanding and cooperation. And developing these organizations, um, were they more about public education or accessing people's hearts and minds through the press at the time? How did he get his materials out, and what was that like for him? All right. In, in large measure, the early stages of peace education was conducted by the peace societies, in particular the American Peace Society, which was created in 1828. And it was largely through what we would call today non-governmental organizations, not really through the formal public school system, but largely through these peace societies, in particular the American Peace Society. And they had a periodical of their own called the Advocate of Peace. And he took control of that and actually had uh, the name changed from the called the Advocate of Peace and Universal Brotherhood. And largely through that periodical, he sought to get out the message, not only to adults, but to young children as well. Well, let's move somewhere else on the timeline and uh, tell us a little bit more about another figure or moment in peace studies history. All right, absolutely. One of my favorites, of course, is America's beloved Lady Jane Addams. I think most students are familiar with Jane Addams and Hull House and the settlement movement. But more importantly, Jane Addams was the first uh, American female to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize which she had to share with Columbia University President Nicholas Murray Butler. Nonetheless, uh, Jane Addams was a very instrumental figure. She was influenced by, of course, the Russian novelist who wrote War and Peace, Tolstoy. So where are we on the timeline here, Chuck? We are uh, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, uh, right around the time of World War I, when there was a movement in America called the Progressive Reform Movement. And in 1907, Adams wrote a very influential work called The Newer Ideals of Peace. Now, in large measure, most people argue that pacifism, that concept of nonviolence, is passive in nature. She sought to radicalize it, change its perception, and say that it is an active ideology, not one that is passive, not reactionary, but proactive. And in large measure, her ideas influenced the creation of what's called the modern American peace movement, which originated around the time of World War I. And she became an instrumental figure in promoting the importance of women in the peace crusade. 
and became the first president of the uh, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Uh, but she is a remar- she was a remarkable woman, a teacher herself. She was edu- she was trained as a school teacher. In large in large measure, she sought to carry it out through the settlement concept, whereby immigrants coming to America around the turn of the century, around 1900, an integration between the Americans who were already here and the immigrants and trying to bring together some cultural cooperation and understanding. So uh, she is a remarkable figure, in my opinion. And again, we're still talking about what some would think of as social or political movements here, not necessarily making uh, peace studies something that is brought into um, children's lives or students. Is that right? That's correct. Absolutely. But our next figure, I think, uh, is one where we could argue that he did make a very serious attempt to bring it into the public school system, and that was the philosopher and educator John Dewey, which most Americans are familiar with. Uh, My colleague at Malloy College, Audrey Cohan, and I have just completed a book on John Dewey. uh, It's called John Dewey, America's Peace-Minded Educator. But after World War I, and what we should remember is Dewey was a very strong supporter of World War I, uh, supported President Woodrow Wilson's progressive idealism of trying to make the world safe for democracy and a war to end all wars. However, the failures at the Treaty of Versailles caused him to re-examine his position, and in 1923, he wrote a very influential article that I argue, and Audrey and I argue, that really set the tone for other for future educators to begin to think of ways of introducing peace education or peace studies in the public school system. And the article is called The Schools as a Means of, a, of Developing a Social Consciousness and Social Ideals in Children. And what he argued is that history, literature, and geography should be taught in the schools, all right, from a global perspective, and that the true instruments of peace are the people, not the diplomats. And how was that received at the time, or can we say how it was different than uh, history was being taught in schools at that time? Well, of course, there was a pushback by patriotic groups, but we also have to consider, too, that after World War I, there was a great deal of disillusionment. So there was a receptive audience, but what was so keen, I think, in terms of understanding Dewey's position is that he argued that democracy is not a political concept, but rather it's a cultural and social one, and its true design is to promote understanding and mutual respect among communities, and that what the public schools needed to do was to interject that into the school system to build a community through democratic understanding and then extend it to the global and international level. Did it get any traction at that time in terms of public education responding to the thought? Well, it did in, in, a, in an interesting way. In the 1920s, there was a very popular movement, uh, a movement to outlaw war as an instrument of national policy. This movement picked up a lot of steam, and Dewey became the chief intellectual spokesperson or spokesman for this movement. And it did culminate in the 1928 Calogue-Briant Pact, or what was called in Europe the Pact of Paris. And subsequently, the, the public schools throughout the country began promoting the idea of outlawry, and they had essay contests, they had posters, 
this was a, 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 a meaningful movement within the public school system to educate children about the importance of ending war, of making war illegal. Unfortunately, the diplomats, as Dewey criticized, uh, didn't put much stock in it. And even though some 52 signatories were signed on by other nations, uh, Japanese aggression in Manchuria and subsequently the rise of fascist and totalitarian powers in Europe uh, put that uh, to bed or put it to rest, so to speak. In general, did the concept of peace studies uh, take a hit, as it were, because of the war years in uh, the mid part of the century? Yes, and they always do. Uh, David Kennedy, a noted historian at Stanford University, wrote a book a number of years ago uh, called Over Here, and it discussed the role of the schools uh, in American society during World War I, and he referred to them as seminaries of patriotism. Throughout the story of peace studies programs and movements, does it seem that we have to be on the brink of war or in war or just out of war to get people to be interested in creating funding and filling peace studies programs? Well, I think that's an excellent question. And I think the answer, at least from my perspective, Paul, is that it's out of war when most people feel more comfortable dealing with the issue. So at the tail end, but not the run-up generally. Yes. Dr. Hallett, you cite the Vietnam War years as the genesis of enthusiasm and development of peace studies curricula in schools, particularly on college campuses. Let's review why and how that happened. Well, I think in large measure uh, it, it might have um, been generated through the teachings that began at the University of Michigan in 19. Uh, 1964, I believe, 65. And uh, I think there was a changing milieu in American society. We all know about the hippie generation and the countercultural rebellion. In large measure, the dissatisfaction with the Vietnam War encouraged uh, university professors to examine ways to introduce peace history and peace studies into the curriculum. And it became somewhat of a sub-discipline, much like you had women's studies, you had African-American studies. So peace studies became, and peace history became, a popular sub-discipline within the university level. What, in your opinion, happened to the idea of peace and peace studies in those years? You, You write that it also was a time when peace was associated with revolution, anti-patriotism, anarchy, trouble in general. Uh, how, how did that happen? Uh, well, that's, that goes back even to the 1920s. Uh, there was an attempt by peace groups to challenge the role of the creation of the Reserve Officer Training Corps on college campuses. And it's easy to label someone uh, as a subversive who may be for peace or who questions uh, the role of the military and society. Now, again, I repeat, I'm a veteran, all right? Uh, I am not a pacifist, but uh, historically, in looking at this, uh, many of these people, I have to admit, Paul, are well-intentioned, these pacifists are well-intentioned patriotic Americans. They're not communists. They're not radicals or subversives in the context of overthrowing the American way of life. They believe sincerely in a, in a community, in a democratic society that's based on understanding and cooperation without violence. 
let me just add one thing, Paul, that I, that should be mentioned here in terms of peace education, whether it was in the public school system or generated through uh, peace organizations. That after World War One, the development of new peace organizations like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, the Religious Organization Fellowship of Reconciliation, uh, uh, the and the War Resisters League, for example. All of them came up with a view, and it was somewhat congruous, that peace did not just mean being against war. It implied more than that. It was about justice, social and economic justice. So it extended its concept to bring more people to understand that it's an idea or a vehicle to change society for the better and in keeping with our democratic uh, ideology. And I think that's very significant. I think what we should also understand is that these organizations promoted racial justice after World War I and continued to do so. And King himself was a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Well, it's interesting. One of the most common chants at a protest or a peace march is no justice, no peace. And I think some people take that to mean that if the people who are marching don't get what they want, they won't, you know, that they will wreak havoc. But really what it means is that if you don't have justice, you don't have peace in society. That's correct. Mm -hmm. that, that's correct. And of course, that's, that is the, the misapplication, uh, that if you don't have justice, you've got to wreak havoc, as you said, and, and that's, not the, that's not the concept itself. That's correct. And indeed, uh, many of the members of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and other peace organizations, Women's International League as well, uh, promoted racial justice, were involved in the uh, first journey of reconciliation in 1947, which was in the northern part of the southern states to integrate, to criticize segregation on busing. So they were very much involved. They helped the FOR, for example, helped uh, found uh, CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, during World War II. And then during the war, when some conscientious objectors were imprisoned for their refusal to serve in civilian public service camps, uh, they protested, these um, conscientious objectors, protested the racial segregation within federal prisons, and actually even in Danbury, the Danbury Federal Penitentiary, actually held a fast. So they were really in the forefront uh, in promoting uh, racial equality as part of their understanding of what peace really is. And King very much himself uh, uh, believed in the, the philosophy of nonviolence, Gandhian tactics of uh, nonviolent resistance. Dr. Hallett, where do you see the progress of peace studies at this point in history? All right, well, Paul, it's there. Uh, how influential it is is another question. It remains viable. It, it remains important. Uh, but I think the dynamics of our society, there's so many other competing interests that it, it hasn't really risen to have a very strong foothold among, within the American consciousness. However, I would add that there are some very viable academic organizations. And the bigger issue, really, I think, that we face in terms of the public school system is, is very simple. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Merrill Curdy, the biggest problem we have, he said, is what, what to do when the values of peace 
are in apparent conflict with decency, humanity, and justice. That's the, cha- that's the challenge, and that remains the challenge for us as a democratic society. Well, I'm also thinking of when the draft ended in the early 1970s, there's been quite a conversation about that's right. what stake the average American citizen has in the conversation about war if there's less of a stake or less of a chance that their kids are going to be drafted into war, that they are less involved with the conversation about war, does that mean they're also less likely to be in, um, drawn to the conversation about peace? Well, that is an excellent uh, insight, and it's something that I have also addressed in some of my writings. That is one of the main issues that I had with regard to the peace movement uh, and those that were against uh, the draft. Where, where was their commitment subsequently once they felt those that were no longer subject to the draft, were they still committed to continuing the crusade to end the war and to bring about peace and justice? Or was it a self-interested or self-entitlement self, uh, that eh, it's not going to bother me anymore? Therein is another issue. Uh, I cannot answer that question as far as my feeling. My feelings are very strong about it. That, that they were truly committed to this, they should have continued to participate. Now, some people may argue with my perspective, but it seems like a lot of the energy of the movement died out uh, after that. Uh, after the draft no longer became a primary issue in their lives. Charles Howlett from Malloy College in New York State, co-author with Ian Harris of Books Not Bombs: Teaching Peace Since the Dawn of the Republic. More from that interview at peacetalksradio.com. As Dr. Hallett suggests, you'll hear about peace studies programs at some colleges and universities, not so much in secondary schools in public education. In a moment, we'll hear about an effort to bring a peace studies program to a public high school when Peace Talks Radio continues right after our break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. And after hearing something about those advocating for peace studies history throughout U.S. history, let's take a look at an effort right here in our hometown city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where a school district counselor and a high school special studies teacher are trying to expand an after-school peace club into a full-on peace studies class at West Mesa High School. 
We're going to hear about that from Counselor Leverett Millen, two West Mesa graduates, Victoria Tercero and Alex Trujillo, and first, teacher Mitchell Rico on the purpose of a peace studies class. We really want to start a discussion about peace, about conflict, both on a personal level and on a wider level. Just having that discussion, I think, is, is so important because you, you just don't hear that in most environments, in, in most places and venues in our society. The way education is so often done doesn't allow for a lot of that. Uh, there's such a push for just teaching the, the core standards, teaching what we're supposed to be teaching and, and uh, getting it all done and crossing all, the, all your T's and checking all your boxes. But um, there's, there's so much more than that, and our, our, I think our world desperately needs it. Leverett Millen? I think that if, if we don't teach about nonviolence, someone's going to be teaching about violence. So we have to teach our um, students that there's an alternative and that a peaceable society is, is possible. And one of the most striking things that I remember is students saying to me after a Peace Club meeting is, how come we didn't get this in school? Leverett, you said a moment ago, if they're not learning nonviolence, then someone's teaching them about violence. Tell me more about that. What do you mean? Who's teaching them about violence? Well, the, the, the content of um, social studies, um, English, um, history classes is about war and um, the, the list of wars and, and the list of um, who won this war and who, who won that war. And, and so that's what's happening in the, in the curriculum. And there's a closed approach um, that violence is, is inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it. And you, you fight fire with fire instead of fighting fire with water. And I remember um, when I would go to um, speak to classes and, and um, educate about the, the Peace Club trying to recruit people, I would say, uh, how many people want to live in peace? And everybody would raise their hand. How many people have never-ending conflict with your um, mother? You know, everybody raises their hand. How many people have never-ending conflict with their best friend? And, and then, um, so, and say, how is it that with the people we love the most, we can't live, live in peace? And how is it that the United States has been at war every single day of its existence since July 4th, 1776? So it's that sense that um, there is no alternative to all of the different forms of violence that are uh, impacting on on our lives, and that the vision of our um, peace studies class is that we talk about big issues for six weeks, then we talk about personal conflicts and what are the values that cause personal conflict, and how do you mediate that, and then bring those two sections together to talk about community engagement, um, how to build new structures. That, that create uh, more of a, an alternative. Mm -hmm. Scaffolding for peace, it sounds like, yeah. 
throughout the establishment of the Peace Club in 2009 and this effort to bring a peace studies curriculum to West Mesa, what have been the obstacles? What have been the opponents? Have there been people saying, no, not a good idea? The obstacles to um, the the program have been people who are have other other jobs and responsibilities, and uh, just getting the time and the effort to pull together the resources to to do the um, curriculum proposal. I did have one one interaction with a teacher who is the head of the the program that was guiding students towards uh, Sandia National Laboratories. And she got very upset with me. Um, I said, did you have any conflicts about um, having students work where there are weapons of mass destruction? And she got very, very angry. And she wrote a letter to the, um, the principal, which is in my file, and I'm very proud of it. And she said that there's something wrong with that guy. He has a lot of anger towards weapons of mass destruction, and uh, it's very upsetting. Alex and Victoria, tell me a little bit more about something looking back now. You're out of West Mesa um, High School, but as you are making your way in, in your lives, uh, can you think of a time where you had something come up that made you think about Peace Club and said, yeah, okay, this is a chance for me to apply this notion, this conversation, this resolution strategy. It definitely made me understand that there are people in this world that are just mean. Victoria Tercero. shouldn't treat them meanly just because you feel hurt about something. Or it helps me understand that people have their own opinions, they have their own morals, and that's just the way it is right now. You can either keep quiet or you can just stand up for what you believe in and people don't like it well then that's not really your problem you just have to keep doing keep doing you <laughs> keep doing you yeah. okay how do people get mean i'm a waitress <laughs> so i've worked with food in the, the food industry for about two years now and people can get pretty grouchy when they're hungry i guess and the best thing you can do is just smile and be like kill them with kindness <laughs> okay how do you mediate conflict at the table with a difficult customer i try to be very nice if i made a mistake i'll apologize if and if they're still really like usually people will see that you're sorry but if they're still really angry like we will get people who are really angry we just the manager comes out we'll both talk to them apologize and hope they if it fix it well great but sometimes they just leave angry mm -hmm. okay i've noticed that when I come across a situation that I don't agree with that's happening within the schools. This is Alex Trujillo. I wasn't involved in it personally, but the park testing, how everyone was protesting in it. This was the extensive testing programs that all schools in New Mexico. Yeah, I have, um, I still had a lot of friends in high school. They're still, they're all in younger, lower grades than I was. And so they were affected by it. And they're like, oh, we're just going to walk out of class. We're not going to go. And all I was thinking is, that's not the way to do it. Not only are you hurting yourselves, but you're not proving a point. And it brought me back to Peace Club and how we made the petition and sent it in, and that was able to accomplish something more than walking out of a class. It's in uh, situations like that that I think back to Peace Club and think, well, how could we do it in a more peaceful manner? Maybe not necessarily even peacefully, but just more effectively. 
So, Mitchell, when you're hearing some of these conversations, uh, what does it make you think about the best-case scenario for a peace club or a peace studies curriculum to uh, help developing minds? I'm glad to hear these stories, um, first of all, because uh, it was a few years ago that, that we were together in the Peace Club, and just that um, Alex and, and Tori remember these things about the Peace Club and that they are applying in some way or other uh, what we talked about, what they, what they learned uh, in their lives today. It feels like um, I made a difference in, in their lives and that they are they're blossoming and, and doing things um, they're, they're leading healthy lives and, and uh, it, it is really a pleasure to to be a part of that that I n- knowing that I, I was um, a part of the, those uh, that experience. Let me just ask each of you to take a minute and try to keep it to a minute, but to say something else about either this experience that we're talking about today, a a memory of yours, some way that it's been useful or helpful, and uh, gentlemen, you know, anything else that you think that we haven't talked about that would be important to get out on the table about this uh, effort to bring peace uh, studies to West Mesa High School. So, Tori, let me start with you. So when I first joined the Peace Club, I do remember people would laugh. Students would be like, no one really knew about it. They were just kind of like, well, what's that for? What are you going for? And I was like, Cause, you know, cause we have to be aware. And I remember standing out there with a poster and we would give away buttons. But people didn't really know what they were signing for. They were just, signing we just want a button. <laughs> and I remember thinking, people need to be more aware. Because if you're pretty much, if you live in ignorance, it's just not going to get you anywhere. You're going to be stuck. But if you're aware of what's going on and what are the possibilities, other outcomes, things can change for the better. Sounds like you had to prep yourself for a little possible ridicule for being associated with the Peace Club. Is that? Yeah, I I did. Okay. (laughs) I remember even sophomore year, I remember it continued and I was just like. But you stuck with it. Yeah, I stuck with it because it was something that I supported and I believe in matter how small the group was and I was always happy to see more people I do remember people would come in and be like what kind of members are you looking for because you know you had the football ROTC jock the rockers and then you had us and then we're like we want everyone we're no we're not gonna we're not gonna just deny you at the door because of what you believe in certain violent things we want everyone to come and hear what we have to say mm-hmm. so okay Alex what, what were you what have you been thinking about um, I think it's important that people know that it's probably not how they're envisioning it. Um, I was involved in both Peace Club and ROTC, and a lot of the ROTC cadets would be like, well, what are you going to Peace Club for? You know, you're just going to sit there and talk about peace and not do anything. It's like, that's not what it is. Just the same way that people see ROTC, oh, all they want is to do military and be disciplined and shave their heads and run around and do push-ups, and that's not it. You, Before you judge a group or a club based on the stereotypes that have been set up, you should see what it's really about, because Peace Club was more than just, oh, no violence, let me just sit here and twiddle my thumbs. You know, it was trying to achieve goals, but peacefully, without violence, without 
rioting, that kind of stuff. And same with ROTC. It wasn't just pure discipline and war, war, war. And uh, it turns out that um, I was involved in Peace Club. Ray was in ROTC. He was in Peace Club. Uh, Chris was in ROTC and also in Peace Club. And there's, there's a way to bring both together if you're willing to give up the stereotypical roles mm -hmm. that they've developed throughout the years. So it takes courage to be in each camp, actually, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right, Leverett, um, what's one more important point to think about that you want to leave us with? Uh, well, um, what I want to leave you with is um, the enthusiasm that the students had when they said to me, how come we didn't get this in school? And, and to provide and make... Um, help make uh, West, Mesa, West Mesa a, a richer, more uh, challenging and um, uh, a richer and more powerful curriculum is what, what's important to me and, and to develop the idea of critical thinking so that we, we know that a, a peaceable society is um, not only possible but inevitable and it's going to take work. Mitchell Rico, last word. Something else that is important for us to hear about this whole idea and effort. One thing that we haven't talked about um, that came out of the Peace Club was an initiative to start a community garden. And uh, this had to do with our ideas around community engagement, making something tangible out of what we were talking about. And uh, since then, we've uh, woven gardening into the curriculum for some of our programs at West Mesa. And we've had over a dozen teachers and hundreds of students uh, become involved in, in gardening. How is gardening a peace topic? Gardening, in so many ways, is a peace topic. We're growing food, nutritious food, that... Uh, a lot of our students are not eating or not eating enough of. We are empowering students to do something, to help themselves, to help uh, each other, their families, the community. We're creating beauty on our campus. May I add something to that? Sure. Alex, <clears throat> go ahead. Another way in which I believe that the gardening integrates with peace is gardening takes time and effort, and you have to be willing to be patient to let something grow. And you can't rush it with words or actions. It just has to go. And you have to be willing to go with it, nurture it, and help it. And that's kind of showing you what we should be doing with conflicts as well. That, you know, you, you have to be willing to be patient to see something through. To see it mature into something beautiful. Peace takes time. Yes. Alex Trujillo there and Victoria Tercero, both graduates of West Mesa High School in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and former members of a peace club there. Now Leverett Millen, a school district counselor, and teacher Mitchell Rico you heard from, are trying to establish a peace studies class at the school. More from all of the folks in that panel at our website, peacetalksradio.com. After our break, we're going to change direction and hop on a tandem bike Tell you all about that in a minute on Peace Talks Radio.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can hear every show we've done since 2002 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. As I said, we're going to change direction now and hop on a bike, but not just any bike, a tandem bike with Jamie Bianchini, who over eight years took a tandem bicycle through 80 countries, offering rides to strangers, making friends, promoting peace and trust, and helping out some communities with special programs along the way. He took his adventure after declaring bankruptcy from some failed business ventures in the early 2000s. And he's written a book about his story, A Bicycle Built for Two Billion. Uh, just uh, around the turn of the century into 2000, I had just gone bankrupt. So uh, it was coming out of uh, the biggest financial and personal loss of my life. What had you been doing? Uh, I was a stubborn entrepreneur who was out trying to make millions of dollars as fast as possible and prove myself and and kind of try to do that in the fast lane. So when you say you went bankrupt, is that um, financially zero balance? Yeah, I, uh, I had, I, when I went bankrupt, I had zero dollars after that. I mean, I was, I was $90,000 in debt. And, uh, after I went bankrupt, I had zero and, uh, I had lost a lot of relationships and had just really kind of hit a rock bottom part of my life. Can you tell me what kind of entrepreneurship you were, uh, endeavoring on? Uh, I did too many entrepreneur endeavors. That was probably my problem. But I did everything from multi-level marketing to product design to telecommunications, and I just jumped around too much. Mm -hmm. So then what happened? Well, after I went bankrupt uh, and kind of hit rock bottom, I, I just had an inspiration. I had an inspiration to... Uh, go after my dreams of what I really love and to finally do something, uh, make some difference in the world. I didn't know what, but I was inspired to, to, to make some difference in the world. Well, where did that inspiration come from? I mean, when you try to trace that part of you, um, what's the source of that? Uh, I, I was reading a lot of books and, uh, at the time and various kind of self-help books, and I ran into to Gandhi's quote, which was, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. A lot of us have heard that before, and it, it just struck me. And when I asked myself that question and was honest about it, the answer was peace. All right, so you encountered Gandhi's very famous phrase. How did you put together the plan that you did to be the peace? That was it. The adventure in and of itself was I didn't have an idea of what that was going to be. I just knew that I wanted to do what I really loved, which was biking and traveling. And then I wanted to make a difference. And when then when I came into the quote and came into like what I wanted to be more peace, that's when I put it all together. I put living my passion of cycling and travel and, and making a difference in the world. So I created Peace Peddlers, and that's where the inspiration came from, a mix of passion and contribution. Well, and what did that look like? Did that just look like you doing this adventure or something else or more people? Tell me more about uh, taking it to action. Yeah, it, it really was an, it was an evolution. It started off with just a logo and a website and a stating of intention of gonna ride around, I'm going to ride my bike around the world with my best friend and going to create peace at the same time without knowing how I was going to actually do it. And uh, a lot of people thought we were crazy trying to do it, but... Um, that inspiration is what ended up creating the tandem bike inspiration to bring tandem bikes around and invite strangers. Who was your friend? 
Garrick Hampton is uh, one of my best friends, and I shared the idea with him of going around the world and trying to create more peace in the world, and he loved it. But he also said, well, how are we going to do it? And uh, that was where the inspiration of the tandem came from. He, he came up with the idea to take tandem bikes, leave the backseat open, and invite total strangers to come out as a gesture of peace and acceptance and openness. What was the very first step toward making that happen? Well, the first step was trying to find somebody to build this bike because we didn't have a lot of money. I was bankrupt. He was paying off student loans still. And so we had to find sponsors and we had to find not just a bike sponsor, but all the different sponsors, plus save all the money. Toward a plan of going where first? A plan of going around the world. That was our goal. Our goal was to go around the world on tandem bikes and connect with and prove to the world that you can connect with and build friendships regardless of religious barriers, cultural barriers, language barriers. But where did you want to start? We wanted to start in Japan. That was our first target. That was where we were trying to save enough money and get our bikes together and our gear together to kick off in Japan about two and a half years after I went bankrupt. Why did you choose Japan? I chose Japan because it was the furthest away and we both had a free flight uh, to get there. My mom worked with the airlines and he had some frequent flyer miles and that was the furthest we could get away from, from home in California to start the expedition off. Did you see it as a continuous road tour or a kind of a drop-in, pedal around and then go someplace else? The idea was we, we actually created a world route. We you know used a very simple uh, map and, and drew a line down the map and said this is the route that we're going to do around the world with bikes. And we didn't know how, you know, how exactly how long we were going to spend in each country, but that was a, it was a continuous route that we were going to be doing. Of course, with some breaks to come home and raise money and see family, but uh, it was mostly going to be a line of, of, of travel. Well, what were the first weeks in Japan like? The first weeks in Japan were really, a, really pivotal weeks for us because we didn't know what to expect. Nobody had ever done it before. No one had ever taken a tandem and picked up strangers. And, and so uh, we, we were rookies. We didn't really know what we were doing. And, uh, and what we found was that people, you know, just using the spirit of play as a kid, responded and hopped on the bike, even though we couldn't often communicate with them. And we were able to, you know, get total strangers to come out and play using nothing more than an empty seat on a tandem bike. Well, tell me more about what that looked like. Uh, describe some of those early encounters, what you did, and how people responded. I think a lot of it was just uh, smiling and and using you know some some language, you know, international thumbs up and smiling and really being an optimistic and enthusiastic, playful spirit that kind of gave other people the ability to. So I would just you know smile, look at the seat. Or if I had already met them the night before, I would, you know, broach the, the subject with them the next morning and, and tell them, hey, you know, I really would like to, to, to share a ride with you. And a lot of times people were, you know, the Japanese especially are a little bit timid. So uh, it, it took a little coaxing, but we were able to, to, to get people to come on the bike. Did you know the language at all? No, we didn't know any of the language. We didn't bring phrase books either. Um, so we just were, were re really just using the very best and trying to find people who spoke a little bit of English. So we could hack through it and use the dictionary and try to find a way to uh, to communicate. Were you starting in an urban area? 
Uh, we started more rural area. Yeah, we you know we stayed uh, we we stayed out in the countryside a bit more for most of the tour. So were these rides being offered just little back and forth rides? Uh, were you trying to offer transportation? Uh, I'm trying to understand whether what you were communicating was get on the back and we're going in this direction. We can't tell you where, or you're communicating that we're just going to do a little circle or ride for a mile, or how did you present it? Uh, we generally had a map of where we were going, and we'd tell people we were going up in this direction. And we would always, our, our gift, our kind of active, random active kindness on a day-to-day basis was to, to invite people to come and ride, and then we would pay for their ticket back to their village or house. So they would just come one way. We wouldn't give them a round trip. They would come with us for a couple minutes to a couple days, uh, and then often later on a couple weeks as the expedition evolved. Um, I want to nudge you to try to get in touch with uh, one of the personal stories that uh, you especially remember that changed you or moved you emotionally uh, or paints a good picture of why this was an important adventure for you and for anybody else who wants to read about it? I would say the, the, the one of the pivotal stories that changed me forever as a man, as a traveler, was when we were in Xi'an, China, and we were just ready to go up into the Himalayas and really excited, really proud. And then out of nowhere, someone stole one of the bikes in broad daylight. And we were only in country three of 80. And we were devastated. And everyone told us we we're never going to get your bikes back. It's gone. In China, bikes are gone, stolen all the time, and they're never recovered. But we are also completely determined to continue the ride so we knew we had to find the bike and we knew the only way to find the bike was be was to get the help of the local people people we who we didn't know who didn't speak our language who were from other cultures different religions we didn't care we needed their help and we we're able to get the word out through newspapers through um through flyers and and all sorts of word of mouth and we were able to have the people of Xi'an force the police to find the bike and the police ended up finding the bike uh, and it was just a beautiful story of of humankind just human beings taking time out of their day to help a stranger and that continued to carry on through all through Asia to the point that I realized that you know for the most part all human beings were all the same as human beings and it, and it, and it changed me forever in the way that I was going to make the expedition go down. We've talked quite a bit about how it changed you. What convinced you that it was making an impact of any substance on uh, many of the people that you were spending time with? I just know that there are many people who said it was the best day of their life. And, uh, and it was the best experience of their life. And uh, even if it was a small ride through, I knew that we elevated people by their smiles, by their energy. And we knew that we would take, those people would take that energy and that experience with an American stranger back to their homes and back to their communities. And whether it was gonna create any huge lasting piece, that little small droplet, 
I, I, I can't tell. I just know that uh, we, we, we raised the energy and frequency in, in the communities that we rode through. And the people who are following our, our, our travels, uh, our growing newsletter list and website tra- viewers and things like that, that was more people from the modern world. And those people often got in, very inspired and, and then we inspired lots of different projects and different trips and, and people to do, to, to, to do some really exciting things. So that, that, that kind of kept me going. I want to hear a little bit about the development of the what I'll call the giving back programs that you initiated. Um, t- tell me a little bit about uh, that part of the project. Well, as I said, it all it all started with this intention to make a to, to make a difference in the world, and that's what Peace Peddler started. And then all the compassion that was given back to me. By strangers inspired me to look what I could give back to the communities that were embracing me and protecting me very much. So I didn't have any money to give people a whole bunch of money, but I had education and I had um, skills and I knew my gifts that I had and they were to organize and to create. So I helped people create um, in their own communities various projects and I helped just to with an intention to be of service. So we, you know, we from donating bikes out in in South Africa, we, 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 you know, we, we, uh, we donated a hundred bikes out in South Africa to a, to a township, uh, brought malaria medication, uh, out through, through, through a bunch of different villages throughout the African continent. And these were things that were just spawned by me being inspired to serve the, the communities that, uh, that, that were taking such good care of me. So really all, it really all started from being so cared for and so nurtured uh, even though I was a total stranger in foreign lands. So in the case where you donated bikes, I mean, you didn't have a hundred bikes to donate out of nowhere. How did that story uh, close out? That was with an, a South African guest rider. Her name is uh, Vanessa, and she wanted to come for an extended ride with me. Uh, and she had never, she had her her parents uh, uh, ex, um, emigrated out of. South Africa because of apartheid and so she she never got a chance to know her own country so and so she went to go back and she said before she wanted to go back that we both agreed we should uh, first bless it with a big big dose of love so uh, we went out and raised money by selling bracelets live big give big bracelets that was the theme of Africa live big give big and we sold enough bracelets to to to, to, to buy a hundred bikes and have them have them uh, have them delivered by us uh, to a township in Kailisha in South Africa. So, um, and that's how that story ended very, very, very positively. It kind of kicked off the, the tour of Africa with a, with a, with a big kiss. Well, this adventure obviously, uh, tickles the imagination. I'm sure of a lot of our listeners, I'm sure a lot of them are saying, well, that was really bold and courageous and peaceful, but I could never do that. Um, what application do you think this story, your story, uh, can have to people who will never go around the world asking people to ride on the back of their bike? Uh, I think the, the biggest thing is the core of, of, of where of all of this came from passion. For Whether it's bike riding, whether it's music, whether it's art, whether it's, you know, 
whatever it may be, movies. I think everybody has passions, and this was this project was founded by passion, and it was my it was my passion for biking, my passion for travel, and I, and then and then my passion to mix that together with some way to make a positive difference out in the world. And so I, I think anybody can do something in their lifetime that's meaningful, that's big, that and just taking a leap to uh, by, 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 by blending that passion in with, with it with the desire to do something uh, meaningful and, and, and uh, important out in the world. Uh, so um, you don't have to go around the world, you don't have to ride a tandem bike, it, but, but I think anybody can do that. it's just a matter of facing the fears and being aware of the, what that what role fear plays in our lives and, and overcoming those. So it sounds like you're saying it's an act of peace to pursue your passion and apply your passion to some sort of larger good pursuit. If possible, yeah. I mean, I think most people who, who are able to understand this recording or are able to hear this, I mean, they're educated in English. They're, 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 they're likely blessed in, the, in that they have an education and that they have so many gifts that the majority of the world's population don't have. And if, if we are part of that fortunate group of people, um, I believe that, that one, of the, one of the greatest gifts that we have is to give back and to help, help alleviate suffering and increase happiness in the world. It brings, I, I believe it, if I took anything from, from this trip is it, the most satisfaction that I've gotten in my life was when I was in a state of giving and a state of contributing and a mindset of what can I do for out in the world besides just me. And the most suffering that I've had in my life was when I was too selfish and was thinking too much about me and not didn't have that heart open to make a difference. So, um, so I believe uh, that if, if people were to give that a try, that they would be pleasantly surprised with a what they can do with it, uh, and, and how and how 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 enjoyable it is, not only for for the other people that are receiving the gifts, but for you, the person who created that 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 gift gift to mankind. Bicyclist Jamie Bianchini. His book is called A Bicycle Built for Two Billion. Hear more about his adventure of riding a tandem bike through 80 countries in eight years, meeting all kinds of people, and promoting peace at peacetalksradio.com. And that's where to go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002, and where to find lots of other resources for your own personal peace studies program. It's also where to go to sign up for a monthly newsletter the monthly podcast, and make a contribution or a vehicle donation to support the work of Peace Talks Radio, peacetalksradio.com. In addition to financial support from individuals just like you, support comes from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman wrote and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.